Welcome back to This Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm spiffy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Ridley Scott has one simple message for historians. Shut the bleep up! At least that's one takeaway from the Octogenarian's director's press tour for Napoleon, during which he has tolerated little foolishness from reporters and critics who have questioned him on issues of historical accuracy. A few quick examples. I I love these, uh, honestly. I can't get enough of them. When asked why he showed Napoleon in Egypt shooting up the pyramids, Scott answered, I don't know if he did that, but it's a fast way of saying he took Egypt. Then, you know, that was about as nice as it gets, really. In another repost, he simply shot back, how do you know? Were you there? One question about uh, accuracy. Another line, uh, when when asked if Napoleon is fair to the French, the French didn't even like themselves. True, true point there. And talking to the New Yorker, his pithy advice for people who keep themselves up at night worrying about the accuracy in movies, get a life on the one hand. I'm mildly torn about this, you know, after all. One half of my double major at a university was a history degree. And in the course of earning that history degree, I'd say something like two-thirds of my credits were from ancient history classes. Greek history, Roman history, Greek and Roman warfare. Fantastic stuff. I loved it all. Um, To the extent that in my Greek and Roman warfare class, um, we we studied this stuff. Uh, The final exam, it's funny, I took that class, I think, the year after Gladiator had come out. Um, And the final exam on it, we were were offered a half point of extra credit if we could cite five inaccuracies in Ridley Scott's Gladiator. It was not a hard task, I can assure you. This is a movie that, for starters, ends with the restoration of the Roman Republic. Spoiler alert, did not happen in real life. But as both a student of history and a student of film, my basic take on this is that it simply does not matter, like at all. I mean, it can matter, I guess, if the director is out there saying, like, this is how it definitely happened, and schools should teach my film, like it's a text. Okay, fine, historians can jump in, right, and they can be upset about that. Or if a comedian is out there, right, you know, talking about how his life experiences should shape public policy, and oops, it turns out he invented those life experiences, well, okay, we could probably uh, take a step back from listening to his policy guidance. But, you know, movies are movies. History is history. And I would suggest that anyone who mistakes the two is engaging in a little bit of media illiteracy. Filmmakers and artists uh, are storytellers. The story they're telling is always by design going to make the history of the story that it's based on subservient. The truth matters less than any given artistic truth when you're dealing with art. That's fine. It's fine. That's a fine thing. Or maybe I'm totally wrong and it's messed up. Alyssa, should filmmakers hew to reality in order to avoid miseducating the masses? Or does it matter for some subjects more than others? Well, I think one thing that is worth parsing a little bit is that there are different kinds of historical inaccuracies, right? I mean, there are sort of inaccuracies of detail and inaccuracies of narrative. So, for example, saying that Napoleon fired cannons at the pyramids is sort of a an inaccuracy of detail, right? I mean, you know, he Ridley Scott is doing that because he's decided it's the best way to communicate something true, which is that Napoleon conquered Egypt fairly quickly. On the other hand, something like the birth of a nation, D.W. Griffith's, you know, sort of 
racist masterpiece about the birth of the Ku Klux Klan is an inaccuracy of narrative, right? I mean, it's like it portrays the Klan as sort of this noble organization that had no excuse but to, you know, fight this tide of black savagery enabled by horrible, you know, people from the federal government. And so, like, the whole movie is a lie, right? It's, I mean, it's, it is a lie that Southerners were telling about themselves, that they were telling sort of deliberately. There's a big Adam Hochschild essay in the New York Review of Books um, this week about the woman who was sort of, you know, responsible. She was the sort of historian general for the Daughters of the Confederacy, who, you know, was in charge of trying to promote what ultimately became the sort of lost cause mythos. And so, you know, I think that filmmakers always have a right to lie. If you are making you know, fictional film, that's what you're doing. But, you know, I think that it is useful to talk about sort of why people lie and what fictions they're telling and where those lies come from, right? I mean, about seven years ago, I did this huge project on the ways in which pop culture depicts the police, which was really, you know, sort of 10,000 words about why Hollywood lies and who those lies serve, right? And where those lies come from. They come out of relationships with police departments that were important for Hollywood to get access to permits to shoot things and police vehicles to use on screen and sort of access to expert consultants that they could use to sell their stuff as more sort of realistic and penetrating. And those lies served police departments and policing in the United States, although to a certain extent, you know, some of those narratives like the idea that, you know, all crimes get solved and all criminals get caught have sort of come around on police departments in some ways and made individual departments look less effective than pop culture has trained people to expect that they're supposed to be. So I don't necessarily have a a lot of problems with the little lies, right? I think like litigating with Ridley Scott exactly how Napoleon conquered things is like it's it can be fun. I mean, particularly when it produces interviews like the ones that he's been giving lately. But I think it's worth distinguishing between sort of lies of technique, lies of detail, and lies of narrative. And to just ask the question, you know, why is someone lying? Where did the lie come from? Who does the lie serve? And I'm using lie as almost sort of a neutral term here, but- um, Falsehood. And, you know, I, I also think it's, you know, worth acknowledging that lies accumulate, right? People don't tell lies in a vacuum. And, you know, they can accumulate and give the sense that police departments are perfect, or they can, you know, you can use fiction for civil rights purposes too. I mean, it's, you know, I think having a healthier debate about historical inaccuracy and what it's for and how it works would make all of these things more fun, right? I mean, like, it's it's fun to argue over why Ridley Scott thinks it's awesome to have Napoleon cannon the pyramids. Like, I, I'm seeing Napoleon tomorrow. I'm sure it will be extremely excellent. But it's, you know, rather than saying that the film is bad because it is on, you know, some level dishonest, you know, what's the gap between who Napoleon really was, what he really did, and what we really want to believe about him, right? That's the, you know, the space in between, the calculation of that gap. 
what lies in that negative space is often what's most interesting to me, rather than a raw question of whether something is or isn't accurate. I, again, I'm very torn on this because I I, I think I, I'm looking at this like purely from a critical perspective, right? The, the, and I, I really think the only job the critic has is to judge the object as it is and whether it works. For instance, Oppenheimer, my favorite movie of the year. I think it gets a, a few things. Wow, spoilers. Few things. Well, well, I mean, that's so we far. Got, we I don't got another month to go. We got forty days left. Maybe something will be better than that. But like Oppenheimer gets gets several things, if not flagrantly wrong, then certainly shades them in ways that are questionable in terms of the what what Oppenheimer actually believed about the use of nuclear weapons and you know the treatment of I think Teller in particular is is a little unfair. But like it's it's interesting to think about in terms of the story that Nolan is very explicitly trying to tell, which is just a different one than the reality. I don't know. Uh, Peter, what what do you make of all this? So since you uh, quoted Ridley Scott on how the French don't even like themselves, it's worth noting that the French do like something, and that's Ridley Scott's movie Blade Runner, somewhat famously. The French were the only people to embrace that film when it first came out, uh, and you can kind of see why. I don't know, not to stereotype the French at all. Um, so you you referenced this in your intro as well, but this is very much of a piece with a discussion that we ha had about comedian Hassan Minaj, who of course was exposed uh, for having fabricated a whole bunch of quite personal stories, or at least have fabricated uh, significant elements of those stories, I should say. Uh, and the problem with what Minaj did wasn't that he told lies for entertainment or comedy. Lying for laughter is an old and noble art. It's that he exaggerated in two ways. First, uh, by claiming direct personal experience that he did not have. And direct personal experience is a different thing than sort of a, a historic portrayal of something that is, you know, a, a little bit fuzzy or, or not quite right by the history books. Since, in fact, you know, especially from something that happened hundreds of years ago, because as Ridley Scott says, he, yes, he's being kind of uh, snarky, but no one was there. We don't know exactly what happened in any one of those moments. So in, there is inherent fiction involved in telling the story of someone who has been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then second, Minaj aired, I think, by defending himself, uh, both during the New Yorker interview and later, uh, by saying that his falsehoods, his exaggerations, uh, the, the elements that he changed uh, from truth to untruth were necessary in order to fully sell people on the deeper political idea that he was trying to communicate. He, he argued that everything he said was uh, based in emotional truth and pointed out, you know, and then uh, when he released his defense video later said, well, you know, yes, I did change some of these things. It didn't happen exactly like that, but I was trying to communicate the power of certain ideas and put the audience, you know, sort of in, in those moments except that those moments never actually happen. I think all of this just goes to Alyssa's point that it is worth interrogating the specifics and the motives uh, of these falsehoods and of these misrepresentations, right? It's worth asking historians about Ridley Scott's movies, right? Are they accurate? It's worth knowing that stuff. That's, that's useful and valuable. And having that kind of interplay between the artist and the filmmaker and the people whose job is to do history, that is a useful thing to do. It's worth just having that on the record. But then when it's in a Ridley Scott movie, you know, the question is, well, why is he doing this? And what is this in service of? And it's in service of, it's in service of cinema. And, and I don't even know how to like put it any more, like how to capture it any more precisely than that, because 
Scott, though he has some recurring themes about kind of survival uh, and the frailty of and uh, the, the 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 frailty and greatness of human nature, also sort of the the fallenness of it, right? Like his his movies are just fundamentally about the visuals, about the pacing, about the intensity, about the vibe and the mood and the feel, right? Like he is, he, he's just kind of somebody who, who treats movies as like, well, I, I, you know, maybe I'm trying to say something, maybe there's something going on here. It's not that he doesn't care about that and it's not that he's not smart. It's that ultimately the thing that Ridley Scott cares about most is, does that look awesome? Does this sell the 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 viewer on what on on this moment? Does it work in the context of the two scenes around it and the all the other right the the rest of the movie? He wants something that looks rich and detailed and epic. And if that means cannonballs hitting the pyramids, then that means cannonballs hitting the pyramids, right? And it's that's the thing that motivates him most. Uh, the the most recent New Yorker profile of him, which was great, um, uh, you know, talks about how he barely even you know pays attention to the historic details and the scripts and like his his movies aren't fundamentally driven by story and script and dialogue, even though sometimes when they work best, they have good scripts and stories and dialogue. Right? It's they are they're driven by visuals, and he takes his scripts. And he converts them into hand-drawn storyboards, uh, Ridley Grahams, famously, because his fundamental approach is visual. He just sees the world as a, a kind of rich, detailed, uh, interesting place to look at. And he wants to put that on film. I think that also tells you why Ridley Scott is something of a hit or miss filmmaker. I'm always interested in his movies, but they're not always good. And the reason is that he ultimately only, or I shouldn't say only, he so prioritizes visuals over almost everything else, including and especially script, that when the script is good, the movies are, are great. When the script is bad, they look beautiful and they are messes. Uh, I would put House of Gucci in that uh, in that category. And this is this is to me, this is not a something that's to be worried about. It's not something that I think Ridley Scott is, well, man, you know, he's he's not telling the truth about Napoleon. I am not worried about this. I think what Ridley Scott is trying to do is entertain people and show them something that is interesting to look at. He is trying to make movies that people want to see and that work on screen as the thing they are, which is a movie and not a history book. To drive a point home here uh, that I think is worth uh, drilling down on, one thing that comes up in these discussions, for instance, with right, Birth of a Nation. You have a movie that ends up shaping policy, is screened at the White House. It's like the first movie that's screened at the White House, right? It like is a it's a it's this massive hit. And it is Joe Biden a, Joe Biden is worried about AI because he saw Mission Impossible whatever the hell the dead, the dead reckoning part one. part one. The entity. I think it's Mission yeah. Impossible seven, if I'm right. not. Yes, what? the entity <laughs> is motivating executive orders. I mean, and that's and that's fair because AI is bad and we should snuff it in the cradle. Part of my discomfort with all of this is that it presumes from a certain, uh, at a certain point, art should be informing the policy decisions that are being made by people, uh, that movies in particular are driving policy. And I, I, while I understand that that is, you know, a thing that is going to happen, it should be a thing we should try to avoid having happen because that's, that's a bad way to make policy like does that does that make sense does that maybe that's maybe that's really where my discomfort comes more than anything else when we get into these discussions of truth or lies or you know nitpicking over the details 
we are uh, essentially seeding the ground that yes, people will watch something and that will uh, make them want to do or enact a certain policy. And I think that's bad. I think that I think that's not great, frankly. So, what so on the you, one hand, what I you want is for human beings to be like good and virtuous and yeah. like do the hard work and actually care about getting things done. I don't even know. I don't even need that, really. I just want them to <laughs> I just want them to not watch Dragon Ball Z and be like, oh, we got to stop the Super Saiyans from blowing up uh, Tokyo. That's that's really all I want. I have actually quite mixed feelings about that idea because on the one hand, sure, there are a lot of bad uh, impressions that one can get from watching movies that might convert into stupid uh, policymaking. Uh, Joe Biden's recent executive order on AI was definitely not my favorite and not terribly informed uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that like the idea that he's watching Mission Impossible to for like a sense of of what the U.S. federal government should be doing about a bunch of code that is being written in San Francisco or Menlo Park or wherever, like that's that is not great. On the other, you hand, don't you don't think the U.S. federal government should send down Ethan Hunt to hunt down Sam Altman and stop? The okay, entity? wait. Actually, now I'm I'm in. I want to see that movie. It's a great uh, idea. But no, actually, just want to see that 100. movie. I don't want to. On the other hand. One of the things that's great about art is that it exists in this liminal zone between, especially popular art, this liminal zone between, like, on the one hand, it is just there for entertainment. And on the other hand, it has a bunch of other downstream effects. That's one of the reasons why all of us care about it. And that's not good or bad even. Like, I think in some ways that can be good. It's just the way people are. The stories we tell, the popular stories we tell ourselves and that we pay attention to and that we think about all the time and that we immerse ourselves in, those are going to change the way we see the world. And that's going to do that's going to be in small ways that don't have anything to do with the White House. Right. Uh, the you guys remember in the late 1990s, the swing dancing craze across America was launched heavily, not entirely, but heavily by the movie Swingers, this little indie sort of uh, dude romance comedy thing with, you know, Vince Vaughn and uh, John, uh, what's his name, who now is basically Favreau. running Star, John Favreau, who is now running, you know, Star Wars for Disney, which is uh, amazing, right? And like those guys helped incept the idea that swing dancing was really cool into American popular culture. Uh, I was actually reading The New Yorker's John Woo interview this weekend, it's, which is just fantastic in so many ways. But a thing that he said was, when I was making A Better Tomorrow, I, I made my gangsters look really cool. And I had them wear all of these fancy sunglasses and trench coats and stuff that was designed to, to show off that these guys were cool operators. And he said when he, he part of this was inspired by him by growing up in a poor neighborhood where there were a bunch of gangsters around. And this guy's dressed like trash. After they saw the movie, he was like, gangsters in Hong Kong started dressing cool because they wanted to look like Chow Yun-Fat. Now, is that good or is that bad? Or is that, this is just how people are. And this is what movies do is they create iconography and they change the way that culture approaches things. That, that means it affects politics. It means if it just affects kind of how people go about their everyday lives. It means that people change the way they look and the way they think about things. And I think... Like I said, I don't even know if I think that's good or bad or like we should want more or less of it. And obviously people shouldn't be stupid. And if you have a lot of power in the world, like the president of the United States does, maybe don't base really important decisions uh, about regulation or war or whatever else on a movie that was that you just saw. On the other hand, 
it's just how things are. And that's part of why we care about them and why we have this podcast. Like, again, I, I go back and forth on this because I do think that, you know, uh, a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin, right, uh, is generally understood to be one of the most influential works of the, you know, I don't know, the, the 19th century because of the real world impact that it had. I mean, I uh, that is a a good thing. And, uh, you know, still. I don't know. I, I go. I do go back and forth on this. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or an controversy that Ridley Scott doesn't give a hoot if his movies reflect reality? Peter? It's a controversy. I love him. He's so ornery. Alyssa? Uh, Ethan Hunt should lead the Balearian Jihad and Ridley Scott should upload himself into the cloud and keep making movies and giving grumpy interviews forever. I think it's a controversy. I mean, my again, my my annoyance with all this is driven by all of the what X gets wrong about Y stories. I hate that formula of story that uh, Slate, amongst others, have really pioneered over the last fifty. Like I don't like nitpicking movies uh, drives me drives me crazy. Yeah, um, we need fewer I, stories like that and more uh, trailer Easter egg breakdowns. Yes, well, those are at least useful. Frankly, they they at least serve a purpose. All right. We are taking this Friday off because it's Thanksgiving, the Thursday before it. So no bonus episode this week. Enjoy your turkey, etc. We'll be back next Tuesday with another helping of Across the Movie Aisle. Uh, and now on to the main event. The Hunger Games, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Some spoilers coming up. We're going to be talking about the movie, including the end of it. So if you don't want to hear us talk about the movie, including the end of it, please log off now. Hit pause on that uh, player. You come back to us in a week or two or uh, six months whenever it's on uh, streaming. That's fine. All right. This prequel series is set six decades before the beginning of the Hunger Games series starring uh, Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen. Uh, the events of this film deal with the early years of Coriolanus Snow, uh, who's played by Tom Blythe in this film. And uh, in the series we are more familiar with, he's played by Donald Sutherland. Um, Snow lives in the capital where he hangs on to the last vestiges of wealth and honor granted by the Snow name. His father was a general, killed during the revolt by the districts, uh, and he desperately hopes to win the plinth, which amounts to, for his purposes, an all-expenses-paid trip to university uh, and a reclamation of his uh, life as a leader uh, in the capital. He is uh, the best student. He feels assured of winning, but oops, no plinth for test scores this year. This year, the prize goes to the young master who serves as the best mentor in the 10th Hunger Games. You will, of course, remember the Hunger Games. Each of the 12 districts of Pan Am sends two tributes, one boy, one girl, to the capital to do combat for the entertainment of residents of the capital and to uh, serve as a lesson to the residents of the districts about what it means to revolt. Uh, Snow is assigned to mentor Lucy Gray Baird, who's played by Rachel Zegler, a singer whose voice may be key to winning over the watching crowds. Lucy Gray wins more than the crowds. She also steals Snow's heart, uh, though how that will play out if she is to win the games is a delicate question given her upbringing and Snow's ambitions. Before the games begin, we meet Snow's classmates and, more importantly, his headmaster, Dean Casca Highbottom, played by Peter Dinklage, uh, game show host Lucky Flickerman, played by Jason Schwartzman, and the head of the games, Dr. Volumina Gall, played by Viola Davis. Um, it's uh, At times it feels almost like Dinklage and Schwartzman and Davis are in slightly different pictures. Uh, Dinklage's high bottom is 
he's vicious, but he has a pathos and a deep-seated angst, while Schwartzman and Davis are doing something closer to high camp. Uh, Davis in particular, she's all sing-song live and delivery and wide-eyed cackling malevolence and delightfully ridiculous uh, hair and makeup. I, I, I kind of loved uh, both Viola Davis and Jason Schwartzman in this movie. Um, they are performing at very high levels of silliness. Um, I don't know if I love the movie as a whole precisely. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think it really demonstrates any particular reason for existing beyond the needs of Lionsgate shareholders. And, you know, that's that's fine, I guess. But uh, I don't know that I really understand the world of The Hunger Games any better now. Snow was never a particularly interesting character to me. Uh, okay, it's fine. Uh, but I did find it fairly entertaining throughout, even through the unduly long third act, which plays like a 40-minute epilogue. It, it goes on. Uh, I, I found it fairly entertaining, again, at least in part because I am, like, I came out of this movie convinced that Rachel Zegler is a straight-up movie star. Like, I think she has that it thing that signals uh, what we used to think of as a movie star. She's the best thing in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story remake. She was probably the best thing about the sheer Shazam sequel. Uh, the camera loves her. She's all like wide eyes and like big expressive mouth. She's like an anime character come to life in a very real way uh, and brings real heart and emotion into her performance as Lucy Gray. This kid's got a big future ahead of her. Uh, Alyssa, as someone who has read all of these books, including uh, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, what did you make of this adaptation for the big screen? It's okay. Um, I don't think it's great. I, I think it's solidly okay. Um, I agree with you that there should have been imbalance in the movie, and I think part of the problem is that the third act is actually sort of more extended in the book, and you have more of a sense that... Uh, Snow is like spending a fair amount of time in District 12 and getting accustomed to it and finding a social place there. And so the sort of the weird twists and turns of the plots and of his sort of moral decision making in the third act of the movie, um, in the third act sort of make more sense and convey more of a character arc. I think I texted Peter uh, and you after Peter saw it that I think it would have made in some ways a better miniseries. Um in the sense that you could get, you know, again, like, you don't really get a strong sense of the social world of the kids in the capital and their parents uh, in the way that you do in the novel. And it's rare for me to say that a movie should be a miniseries, but I think if you were going to do that, the smarter way might have been to do it in, like, three or four hours to get more of the sort of broad social vibe. Um, you get a sense earlier that Casca Highbottom and Coriolanus's father were friends and there's that sort of uneasy relationship there rather than having it just sort of sprung at the last minute. Snow Sister, um, Tigress, is a much bigger character in the novel as well. And you get a sense of sort of what she's been doing to kind of keep the family afloat and of some of the sort of moral differences between her and her cousin. And so if something like this was necessary, and I'm not sure that it was, maybe Suzanne Collins like really wants a beach house or something, um, then I I think it would have benefited from being able to breathe a little bit more. And, you know, I, I think the most interesting thing about it is that you get, you know, sort of a more leisurely sense of both the capital and the districts, at least in the novel, but that doesn't really come through in the movie. And so it feels very much like a retread, right? I mean, the stuff that happens in the arena is, you know, the action-y stuff, but also because it's sort of deliberately scaled down in this telling, it's kind of the least interesting material, and it takes an awfully long time. I totally agree about 
Zegler, though. I think she I think she is great. And not just because she looks like an anime character, but because of the moments where you see sort of contempt or uh, concealment, you know, that sort of final scene between her and Snow in the cabin, which again, like, and one of the things the book does is that like they're running away for a much longer period of time and you see him, you know, sort of just yearning for physical comfort, getting, you know, like the romanticism of like running away and having this grand romance kind of falling away. But that moment where she goes from being sort of like, oh, I'm the like I'm the last loose end to being like, oh, you wouldn't be threatening me, would you? It just is genuinely interesting. And I'm excited for Zegler to get a part that plays against the, you know, live, like real live Muppet sort of, you know, like, oh, she's so sweet and adorable. I'm like, I'm excited for her to get to do something like kind of nasty or weird because I I am curious to see what her full range is, right? I mean, I think we've gotten the sense that she's extremely good in a fairly narrow range, um, but I'm excited to see her do something like that has no hint of the ingenue. Oh, but I think she's, I think I think she does that very well here and specifically in that yeah. scene you mentioned, you know, in the, in the, the cabin uh, where she is clearly weighing the odds of her survival with him versus on her own. There's just this look yeah. in her eyes that's like, oh yeah, she, she, um, she's not coming back. I, I'm curious in the book uh, if it if it was as it's not really that ambiguous in the movie, I guess. But how ambiguous it was uh, that she decides to leave him and try to kill him on the way out. I mean, I think it's it's sort of an open question. It's like who sort of makes the first decision mm-hmm. um, that this is not a partnership that's going to last, or if it's sort of a. I mean, it's clear that Coriolanus has decided that this is not the life for him, that, like, the grand romance has um, gone away. and But she is not taken by surprise by that, right? I mean, she is, like, capable of defending herself and attempting to mount an escape. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I get the sense in the movie that he was still ready to go off with her. I did not, yeah. I did not feel in the movie that he was about to pull the trigger on, on her. Yeah, I think in the book it's clear that he is sort of reverting to mean, that he's had this experiment with being a different kind of person. And when that becomes at all like sort of physically difficult or unpleasant, sort of that he is like, oh, okay, I can go back and have this cushy life and clearly leans in that direction. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of this new Hunger Games return to Pan Am? Well, it's a nicely crafted movie with some sharp world building. Uh, and some nice imagery, um, uh, quite strong performances, I think stronger than you would expect based on the fundamentals of the story and the script here. I didn't hate it. It's not a trash film, and it's a heck of a lot better than the most recent blockbuster we saw. But the more I think about this movie, the more I just don't think it really works uh, at all on its own terms. And that's because it doesn't give us any story or script reason to care about any of these characters. You get almost no background on Lucy Gray. To the extent that you do get it, it's basically all told, not portrayed a little bit in that third act, right? But there you're just like, at that point, you're sort of so deep into the movie that it is like, if, you ha- if you're if you not caring by this point, like this is too late. 
um, right? And there's just not that much to connect to. Uh, uh, there's not much that grounds her character in something other than, well, Zegler's a good performer and you don't want to see her die, right? And you know what's going to happen to Snow as well. And you know what's going to happen with the games and with Pan Am, right? Like that, all of that is is done already because we've seen the Hunger Games because those stories worked. And one of the reasons why the original Hunger Games worked so well was because there were real stakes for, for the... Uh, the civilization, for the individual character, for District 12. And the first movie starts with a full 30 or 35 minutes or so just living in District 12 and getting a sense of how that's how that place works and what its relationship is to the capital. And we just don't get that here. Instead, we get this sort of little sob story about Snow and how, you know, his family is uh, uh, seeing on hard times. They don't have money. He's right. Like he's uh, got his parents have been, you know, were killed or whatever. And I just didn't care at all. I thought it looked nice. I thought at times it was interesting. I thought everybody on screen pretty much uh, gave a performance that was much better than this than the script and the story and the words they were given to deliver. And Zegler in particular, the fact that I cared in that like I was sort of engaged with her character in any way uh, is a remarkable performance. She just totally holds the screen. But she's like, just think about that with a slightly lesser actress with a slightly lesser performer, there's nothing there. I mean, she sings, and I guess it's powerful or something, but like there's no, there's there's no like, this is what's gonna happen, except she might die, and so that second, right, so the second act is like, well, she might die. Okay, so we gotta deal with that. And then the third act is like, well, Snow's gonna become Snow, and she's gonna, I guess she might die, right? Like, but it's, it's there's no, there's just not much there to hold on to about like what are we fighting for and what are we fighting about and the original trilogy there were some things that i i disliked or didn't think worked uh, totally about it i mean some of the world building was uh you know was a little bit ad hoc and uh like this movie very episodic right like just sort of this happens this happens this happens it almost even even apart from the chapterizing of this like this movie and the previous hunger games films all really feel like actually just like you're watching a bunch of little 20 minute episodes that have been strung together rather than like you are watching a, a a big coherent sort of picture that you know story that opens and closes and has you know all, all of your full dramatic bts yes there are clear act structures built into all of them but i just i just didn't care and that whole third act as often beautiful as it is as nicely acted as kind of well crafted in the moment scene by scene I, I wanted to get out of that theater and I, I was not interested. Like there was just nothing that kept me interested in any way in what was going on there. Well, the movie, the movie does have a structural problem in that it is, it's, it's giving us the backstory about a character who we know to be vaguely evil and it tries to make him the underdog by turning it into this like poor little rich boy story, which as you say, Peter, I like I don't care that much about, frankly, his his troubles did not make my heart feel for him. Uh, and I will say that the other thing about this movie is that it is like the rest of the Hunger Game movies to me, like basically a B or a B plus. Like all of these movies are fine. I didn't read the books, so I don't I don't have any 
particularly strong attachment to the story that is being told or like it's it's all like competently it's it's the high water mark of the we're gonna kill kids for entertainment subgenre that like the divergent you know or maze runner series like whatever like well, most most of that subgenre was inspired right, by right, right. hunger games and the hunger and that's because the hunger games did it best and this is actually this is this is something that this movie lacks is that the hunger games they, like I said, there was some ad hoc kind of world building that just sort of was like, well, we're, we're just going to do this now, right? It's not all it's not all carefully planned and it's episodic and, and all of that. But that movie or that story, I should say, in both the books and in the movies just captured a really particular and specific kind of metaphorical generational sensibility of a world that ha- that was unfair of authority figures whether they're governments or whether they're parents that were just punishing kids somewhat randomly of, of kids being put through a, a completely ridiculous and insane gauntlet uh, in order to you know to make it to adulthood and survive of crazy expectations driven by the media of this world you know like this you know, of a world uh, in many ways defined by a particular kind of economic and political inequality. And it just, it like, again, it, I shouldn't even say it's super specific. Actually, it's super general. It captured it in a very general way and was just right on the money at the right time. And it felt like it was on the, the bleeding edge of all of that. And it just had this resonance that worked. And Jennifer Lawrence was great. And Francis Lawrence, the director of the the second, third, and fourth of these movies, plus this, uh, plus this one, is a quite competent director. Just like knows the craft, gets like the stuff looks good. It's interesting. It's intense when it needs to be, and that metaphor pulled people in, and and helped drive a lot of the interest in that story, and helped make it feel more powerful and more and more resonant. And there, that doesn't exist here. This doesn't feel like something that has something like a movie that has something to say even about its own world, much less about our world. And it it just doesn't it doesn't demonstrate like a reason why you should care about any of these characters or this world or the fate of anyone because we know where it's going. We know what the games are going to look like. We know that this ultimately resolves in Snow becoming, you know, old Sutherland, old Donald Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland's dad. You know, it's been kind of intense and grumpy. Peter, and it's like, eh, isn't it? Not. Isn't it also the case that this doesn't sort of resonate with its times because the aesthetic of the Capital One, right? I mean. We live in an influencer economy when you can send your kid to camp to become a YouTube star and you can have them be unboxing toys instead of killing kids in an arena. But, you know, the, I don't know, collab houses and stuff in L.A., like we basically found a softer way of the Hunger Games and decided that we wanted to live in it. We're all the districts. No one's the capital. Um, And... So I don't know that it says anything about precarity when, like, it's as if all the tributes were like, oh, hell yeah, like, I'm going to ride this all the way. The aesthetic of this movie I found fascinating because it, it I, I found it very confusing in a way because all of the, it, it's like, it's like, what if 1950s automobiles and clothing kind of, except Pan Am is supposed to be America kind of in the future? I, I like, I, I. I found it a little bit weird and jarring the the aesthetic they were going for in the you know the the capital in you know which is supposed to be 60 years in the past except it's like 60 years in our past which should still be but like also 30 mixed years with in our a little future. bit of like third Reich kind of Nazi Germany 
there's yeah, definitely there's, there's like, some, there's like there's the, I, the 50s, the, you know, a uh, 50s Americana is part of this for sure. But there's some real like. It's like Hitler's Man in the High Castle rise. vibes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I just want Lucky Flickerman's amazing mid-century office. I right. want to know how he does that trick with the coin. That's what I want to know. Uh, I, I I thought Schwartzman was great. And we haven't talked really at all about Viola Davis, who I do think is actually like delightfully hammy in this. It's like she was, she they gave her uh, a background where like, all right, chew on this. Just chew it all up. And I loved it. I, I, I enjoy watching actors and actresses do that. She's very good. Schwartzman's very good. I, I, again, all of the performances here are much better than the material. And you can apply my, you know, usual test for like, what is a what is an actor bringing relative to, say, just the the script itself? Close your eyes. Imagine seeing these words on a page, not having heard them come out of these characters, these actors mouths. It's just okay. This script is just okay. And the actors, in combination with Lawrence, who clearly has some talent, uh, Francis Lawrence, I should say, the director, who clearly has some talent as a directing actors, the actors really elevate this material and make it watchable. I want to see a rainbow of destruction raining down on our enemies. God, it's, yeah. And some of this is uh, Colin's writing, which I have to say, I'm rereading the original Hunger Games books right now. And I feel like her prose kind of gets worse in this book. Um, I will say, though, she is really good at writing fictional song lyrics. Um, particularly the sort of like Appalachian country-ish stuff uh, that shows up in these movies a lot. And for example, like the the fictional lyrics in, um, you know, like Daisy Jones and the Six, um, which are really not very good, especially when compared to Fleetwood Mac. But, um, you know, something like The Hanging Tree is like legitimately pretty good murder ballad. Um, and so she has some real talent for that, which yeah. elevates these movies. Um, yeah. In just like a nice little way, it's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Most people are not good at when compared to Fleetwood Mac at, at the thing that Fleetwood Mac does <laughs> at, at writing. Well, most people music. have not done as m- many drugs and had as many affairs as Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. To be fair, uh, I, honest. I love. I actually love Lawrence. I uh, I think his his. His non-Hunger Games films, I have all I have liked a great deal. Uh, which well, I really like Constantine. I am Legend. I am, Constantine. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about I Am Legend and uh, Red Sparrow, both of which are very nicely crafted. And I Am Legend, in particular, does great world building. I don't know that they totally work on their like as stories. I think there there's issues with both of those movies uh, when you get down to the script level. But Constantine is great, and I'm very excited to see him work with Keanu Reeves on a sequel. Yeah. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? Peter? Barely a thumbs up. Uh, no, actually, I'm changing this mid, mid-grade. Barely a thumbs down. This is very competent film, and if you like The Hunger Games movies, you gotta like. You probably won't be disappointed, but I don't think it works on its own terms. Alyssa? Uh, um, it's a perfectly serviceable laundry folding movie. Is that a, is that a thumbs thumb? Watch it, watch it. It's on a your thumbs own, up. It can, it's watchable yeah. under certain circumstances. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically where I come down, and that's why I give it like it's it's a very two point five out of four star movie, and those can go either way. Those can be positive or negative. Uh, I I give it a very uh, a very very lackadaisical thumbs up, just because I do think I I I. I, I we, Rachel Zegler has now been in three movies, 
and she has been the best part in all of them. And I like looked up her IMDb because I assumed she had to be some sort of like child actress who had been, you know, nope. doing Disney shows or something. No, just three credits to her name. And she is she's fantastic in all of them. I am excited Grew to see up what in New she Jersey, does next. Got found by Steven Spielberg. I give her I give her a thumbs up uh, as yes. much as anything else I, in this movie. Okay, that's it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would be much worse. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 